And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took took a sucking lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord of Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as, as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged all Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Why do we need a king? In a book all about two kings, um, King Saul and King David, it's a very crucial question. Why do we need a king? And of course, you could answer that question in all sorts of ways. But fundamentally, the answer is this, to lead in and to win the battle, if you like, to save the people from their enemies. That's why we need a king. And like last week, we're still in this unusual part of this book. Um, Having spoken of the king at the conclusion of Hannah's prayer, our memory verse, chapter 2, verse 10, uh, we are in a sense waiting for chapter 8 to start, uh, where the focus becomes, find the king. But before that, the author has inserted these extraordinary chapters. Um, From them, we need to learn 
two crucial lessons. Firstly, last week, what we saw, the primacy of God's word. Before a king could come, that had to be in place. That foundation is the key to everything else happening. That's the first big lesson. And this week, the second crucial lesson, we need to know that God alone is king, that any victory achieved is the Lord's, that any salvation is the Lord's, that any power belongs to the Lord, because God alone is mighty. That's all we're going to see today. And what a wonderful thing to get clear before we get to a king. See, it would be so hard to make this point like this once the kings are in place. And doesn't the story make this point so clearly and so amusingly? I hope you enjoyed reading about it all week long. It's so funny. Uh, Can you imagine a clearer set of scenes to make this point that God alone is mighty? Uh, Let's get into the story. And our story you see today is a journey from Ichabod to Ebenezer, from Ichabod to Ebenezer. Now, don't worry if you're new and you don't understand what either of those words mean. Um, Nobody else here knows what they mean either. But hopefully the points on your handout might help you as we go through. Uh, We start in chapter four uh, and we meet the Philistines. Uh, The Philistines, they're descended from the Egyptians. There are five city states uh, with all the cities running up the coastline. And they're Israel's public enemy number one. They are the bad guys. So if we've read Hannah's prayer, we're expecting God to reverse everything and bring them down and raise up Israel. But no, chapter four, surprise, surprise, the Philistines win not just once, but twice. So Israel are the fat arrogant, proud ones that need humbling. So we have battle one. Battle one is already complete by verse two. um, And Israel lost uh, badly. Uh, 4,000 men died in battle one. Uh, That's a very bad day at the office. Um, And Israel wonder what happened? Uh, What went wrong? They realized something was wrong between them and God. So they try the quick fix. Uh, Bring the Ark of the Covenant, uh, that magic box, which should fix the issue. Uh, Clearly, though, they're not caring about their relationship with God at all. Because just look who is carrying the box. End of verse 4. The fat, evil, and corrupt priests, Hophni and Finn. We met them last week. So they go to battle again. And by the end of battle two, even with the box, verse seven, sorry, verse 10 even, they've lost 30,000 men, over seven times worse than battle one. That was a very, very bad day at the office. And not only that, Israel have lost their corrupt priests, Hophni and Phinehas, both dead. Maybe that's not so bad. But worst possible outcome imaginable, the Ark of the Covenant, the very real presence of the glory of God has been captured. And did you spot verse 8? 
sorry, verse 18, that it was this news that brought high and heavy Eli down. Not the news of his sons dying, all the 30,000 dead, but that the ark was gone. And it's this news that causes Eli's newly born grandson, Phineas's newborn, to be called Ichabod. Chapter 4, verse 21. Read it with me. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured. Ichabod, named to mark the day. It was very common in those days to name your kids after big events. I, for one, am really grateful that we don't name uh, children after events that happened on the day of their birth anymore. Um, I was born on the day Microsoft 1.0 was released. (laughs) I just think of what some of the names of the newborns at the 10 a.m. might be uh, called. Boris has left. Football still not come home. Uh, Ichabod. It literally means no glory. No glory. Glory gone. What a disastrous name for this little boy now to live with. Uh, Just imagine the shouts from the football pitch, pass the ball, no glory. Um, Or the school register being called out, no glory. Yes, sir. This was a disastrous day for Israel. In fact, it's the second worst day in Israel's history. Uh, This day is only topped by the fall of Jerusalem in 578 BC, as Israel are exiled into Babylon. Uh, These are the two worst points in Israel's history when Israel as a nation were truly under threat of falling apart. So Ichabod is a perfectly apt name, and it sums it all up beautifully. What is Israel Without her God, God's symbol of his very presence gone, worse still, the enemy clutches onto the ark. It was a very, very dark day in Israel's history. Now we need to ask an obvious question. And I say it's obvious. It took me ages to even ask this when I was preparing for today. Uh, Here's the question. Was Phineas's daughter right? Had the glory of God really and truly departed from Israel? To put it more provocatively, was God now a powerless prisoner? See, on the one hand, yes. Of course, the glory had departed. The ark was now physically gone. The symbol of God's very presence was in the enemy's temple. But on the other hand, fundamentally, no, it had not. I just keep reading for a very few verses into chapter five, and you'll realize God was not a powerless prisoner. God had not gone anywhere. He was alive and very much kicking. Just look at what he did to the so-called God, Dagon. So now we need to meet God's new enemy, Dagon, this Philistine God. Dagon was apparently the father of the gods. Um, He was the god who made people kings in their lands. How apt for a book all about kings. 
And the Philistines believed in multiple gods, much like our society does today. Celebrate everything, be tolerant of every belief. Although, of course, really, it means you don't believe in anything. That's why the Philistines didn't destroy the ark when they got their hands on it, but rather they put it in the city's temple next to Dagon. It enriches the whole experience. Two gods are better than one. Well, all that is, unless you have the only true God. And that's why we have this showdown. I call it a showdown. It's hardly a contest, is it? Chapter 5, verse 2. They put the ark next to Dagon, keeping him company, perhaps. It reminds me of my daughters lining up their dollies at nighttime to go to bed. Uh, they get up in the morning, and, and what do you know? Dagon has face planted, uh, face to the ground, conveniently placed before the ark of the Lord, as if Dagon worshipped the Lord. Uh, mind you, the fun has only just begun because, like all false gods, uh, they need to prop them up. Um, I bet, uh, pained and perplexed, Uh, They called the local handyman uh, to bolt Dagon into place with extra long screws, rule plugs, and extra fastenings to be sure, just to make sure that Dagon doesn't go wandering off again. Uh, We don't want any more uncompromising scenes for our God again, do we? But next day, verse 4, everyone wakes up bright and early, and what do you know? Uh, Dagon has been decapitated this time. Uh, No head for thinking and no arms for action. Uh, Dagon has been stumped, literally. See, they used to cut off the heads of murderers and hands of thieves. Uh, Quite a sight for the Philistines. In fact, often at the end of the battle, a victorious king would bring back the head and the hands of the opposing king just to show the battle was truly won. Some god Dagon was now, hey? So the rest of chapter five, the Philistines start the hot potato game. Uh, The Ark of the Lord was passed between their cities like an unwanted plague dispenser. Uh, It goes from Ashdod to Gath, Gath to Ekron. And God terrorizes three out of the five Philistine cities. Uh, The other two cities, they probably don't want to get involved because they get wind of what's going on. Tumors and plagues for everyone where the ark was. Uh, No, thank you very much, they must have thought. And oddly enough, did you spot this when you were reading this through? The Philistines really understand what is going on. Did you notice that in this, these chapters? Every time they know that it's the Lord's hand which was heavy against them. Heavy or indeed glorifying and honouring. We thought about that last week. Now just remember uh, what God had done to Dagon's hands. It's comedy, isn't it? Uh, God's hands are heavy against the Philistines while Dagon doesn't even have any hands. In fact, until chapter 7, only the Philistines are the ones who actually understand what seems to be going on. 
They, of all people, are the theological commentators in this chapters. Do you remember back in chapter 4, their first sight of the Ark of God, chapter 4, verse 7, that has them quivering in their boots. And what do they say? This is the God who struck the Egyptians, i.e. this is the Exodus-saving God. Uh, That is what made them really scared, not the 30,000 men. And so they should have been. Because in chapter 5, God, without the help of anybody else, single-handedly brings down the Philistines. And by the time you get to chapter 6, the Philistines just want to get rid of the ark. Months of plagues and havoc is enough for them. And the brilliance is, they send it back with a guilt offering to atone for their sins, as well as a load of gold to basically say sorry. Although, did you enjoy the extra hard, impossible test that they built into the return of the ark? Chapter 6, verses 7 and following. See, they're still basically suspicious of all that's going on. Uh, They build in this impossible test just to make absolutely sure it really was the Lord's hand at work all along. So this is what they do. They strap up the ark to the sacrifice, some milking cows. And these cows, they've never pulled a thing in their life. They've never even put a yoke on. Uh, These are learner drivers. Um, It's recipe for a crash and a broken ark. Uh, What's more, uh, they have just given birth to some new calves. And so they put these these cows, hungry calves, back in Philistine, and then they just watch what happens next. And you don't need to have years of experience on a farm to know what is bound to happen. No man driving the cart, two hormonal cows in charge, who just want to feed and care for their calves, which, by the way, are in the opposite direction, and who have never done a day's pulling in their life, and who don't even know where Beth Shemesh is. How do you think it's going to go? Well, chapter 6, verse 12, the cows went straight there. No deviations, all to the soundtrack of a lot of mooing. It's almost like a greater hand was guiding them against their will. And the point is obvious, isn't it? Who beat the Philistines? Whose hand was behind it all? The entire story is told to make the single point. Not an Israelite hand was in sight. No prayers were seemingly prayed. Samuel wasn't even speaking or being a priest through any of it. No, it was God alone that did it all. God alone is mighty, mighty to save. Now to the conclusion of the story, and despite this mishap with the ark, end of chapter 6, chapter 7, Samuel steps up as priest, and finally Israel defeat the Philistines seemingly for good. Battle 3, if you like. Uh, Read chapter 7, verse 12 with me uh, as the conclusion. Then Samuel took a stone 
And he set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now, the Lord has helped us. And he's right. The Lord has helped them. Uh, He alone. Uh, Now, did you notice uh, where our story began back in chapter 4, verse 1? Just flick over the page and have a look. Where did it all start? The story, chapter 4, verse 1, also started in Ebenezer. Uh, We've come full circle of sorts. So, So you see, during the years that cover these chapters, Ebenezer was the place to mourn over. It was the defeat site. Just imagine Israel walking through Ebenezer and thinking, uh, this was the place of our greatest defeat. Uh, Ebenezer would have been the place of Ichabod. But no longer. No longer. God has reversed all that. By chapter 7, Samuel recasts the whole story. Defeat turned to deliverance. Ichabod to Ebenezer. Reversal. And the conclusion to the chapters and the signal that we're ready to find a king, chapter 7, verse 13, subdued Philistine armies. Verse 14, cities restored and ultimate peace in the land. And all of that was achieved when it, what, was, was what, what a king was meant to do. Why was there now peace? Was the Israelite army suddenly brilliant? Had Israel intimidated them into submission? No, the only reason given is that the Lord helped them. Ebenezer. See, in chapter 4, they had an enormous army, presumably more than 30,000. But they lost the majority that day. In chapter 7, what did they have? No army worth writing numbers about, no human reasons for victory, but they related to God rightly. They served the Lord only. Look at chapter 7, middle of verse 3. Samuel said, serve him only and he'll deliver you. Verse 4, so the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asheroth and they served the Lord only. See, what Israel needed to grasp was this. No matter how many of them there are, they won't win without relating rightly to God. And no matter how small they are, they cannot lose so long as they relate rightly to God. Numbers don't matter. Feeling big and important don't matter. Relating rightly to God is all that matters because God alone is the one with the power and he'll always work through judgment of the proud. Now, why did Israel need to know all this? Imagine if we didn't have chapters 5, 6 and 7. They'd be left with just Ichabod. It's all gone. Uh, God has left us. The plans and purposes of God are ruined 
And the great reversal of Hannah's prayer from chapter 2 is dead in the water. But these chapters put a totally different spin on it all, don't they? There is no power too great for God to deal with. There is nothing God on his own cannot do. You might even go as far to say uh, we need to get out of God's way and leave him to get on with doing things his way and just enjoy the ride. God's plans, purposes and timings are far superior to ours. If only we'd believe him and get on board with him. See, imagine the devastation of being defeated from chapter 4. And yet still, when we get to chapter 7, that devastation is reversed in such a way that God's power, sovereignty, and purposes all remain intact. It's brilliant. Let's apply this to us. Do you ever feel like you're in a situation that you just can't come back from, no matter how dark the day. And chapter four really was the second darkest day in Israel's whole history. God is on the throne. He is the one with the power. He is still in power, reigning, mighty, what a wonderful lesson to be taught before we go on the roller coaster ride of Saul and David. God alone is in charge. In fact, uh, we need to know that God is in control of absolutely everything. Both the chapter 4 lifting up of the Philistines and the lowering of Israel, as well as the chapters 5 to 7, lowering of the Philistines and the lifting up of Israel, all to achieve his purposes. God is a God that both lowers and lifts up. I hope we believe that. I wonder if this is how we think of our God today. I mean, do we think that God could bring down the church that we know and raise up a humble, faithful, little ministry instead? Uh, could he bring about the darkest days of our generation and raise up a ministry that truly listens to his voice in the Bible? I mean, it would be devastating, wouldn't it? But of course he could, and maybe he will do that soon. Uh, that is the kind of God that we have and we need to trust him in those kind of dark days. Uh, we need to trust that he is on his throne, lowering and lifting up the humble listeners. Finally, as we wrap up, we need to realise um, how the narrative has been furthered here. And there are some lessons for us to learn along the way. We need to realise that the kind of leader we follow is the kind of people that we will be. Uh, simply put, good leader, good people. Bad leader, bad people. Um, arrogant leader, arrogant people. Humble leader, humble people. 
And that's always the pattern in Samuel. I mean, it's why finding the right leader is so important. See, the journey from Ichabod to Ebenezer uh, leaves us with real hope for Israel. Because Samuel is a good, humble prophet and priest. And so now, finally, by the end of chapter 7, we are ready for a good king to step in and complete the set, if you like. Uh, See, remember, the job of the king is salvation, to save. And yet, what we now don't need is a warrior king, uh, because God wins the battles. Our story from Ichabod to Ebenezer has shown us that really clearly. Our king needs to know that God alone is mighty in the battle. And God has clearly shown us that he could deal with enemies without any great military hero. That is not what Israel need with God on the throne. The king needed to be humble and to keep his people humble. Uh, For we know God is a God of great reversals. He will bring down the arrogant and raise up the humble. So we need a humble king and one who will listen to our humble prophet, Samuel. And next week, we're going to meet the first candidate, Saul. And I'll leave you to figure out what to make of him. But of course, we know he isn't the real deal. The real king King Jesus, um, who we've sung about all morning, um, he knows his place before the almighty God. Uh, When he came, he didn't arrogantly grasp at power. Uh, In fact, uh, he humbled himself more than we'll ever understand. And so as we close, um, do you know that God alone is mighty? Uh, Does your life show that? And when you're in trouble, who are you turning to first? And are we looking to the one who is truly humble? The one king who's truly humble. The true king who knows that God alone wins the battles. And are we lining up behind the only king who exposes our arrogance? King Jesus is the only king who will truly save because... He knows our God of reversals perfectly. So hide yourself in him. Let's pray. Gracious heavenly Father, you are the mighty one to save. Thank you so much for this extraordinary, funny, amazing story. Thank you for the journey from Ichabod to Ebenezer and all that it teaches about you. Thank you that you curated it so that nobody else was involved, no prayers were seemingly prayed, no Israelite hands were helping, but that we see you alone defeating your enemies. Thank you so much that that is the kind of God you are, that you did raise up Philistine and then lower them again. And then you lowered Israel and raised them back up again. Gracious Father, we pray that we would know you, that we would listen to your voice above all else. 
And in your kindness, we pray that we would be trusting our whole lives to the King who is humble and mighty to save. And we pray that for your glory. Amen.